0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, if you're a fan of the show Law & Order, there is something that you know all too well.
1: In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders.
0: But for many New Yorkers, especially a few decades ago, law and order would have been the last things to come to mind when the police were mentioned. That's because at that time, many NYPD cops were heavily corrupt, and many others were on the take in smaller and less spectacular ways. In 1970, the New York Times reported that graft payments to the police were running into the millions, and that's in 1970 dollars. While the once-flourishing culture of corruption among NYPD officers has lessened dramatically since the 70s. That's thanks to numerous commissions and investigations, as well as the creation in 1995 of a permanent board to oversee the police department's anti-corruption activities. For many who were around in the era of Frank Serpico and the Knapp Commission, police corruption is still very much on the radar. One of those people is Charles Hines. Hines has been the district attorney of Kings County, Brooklyn, since 1990, and he has been working in public service as a legal aid lawyer and special prosecutor, among other jobs, since 1963. Hines also teaches at St. John's, Brooklyn, and Fordham law schools. Recently, he's made a slight departure from his just-the-facts career into novel writing. That said, Hines describes the novel, which is called Triple Homicide, as a mostly true story. It's about murder and police corruption. A little later on the show today, we will hear from some cops and others on the late shift, and we'll also hear about one crime problem that has taken root in the city in recent years and shows few signs of letting go. But first, I asked Charles Hines to come all the way up to the North Bronx from his office in Brooklyn and talk with me about the book and why he wrote it, and he was kind enough to oblige. Charles Hines, thanks so much for coming up here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, tell me the story that you tell in this book.
1: Basically, it's a uh, it's a murder uh, mystery. It's uh, set over several decades, which correspond to, uh, I guess, two of the darkest periods in the history of New York City Police Department when uh, corruption was uh, rampant. It has a factual connection with me because um, I was chief of the Rackets Bureau in the 70s in Brooklyn, and I was the special state prosecutor investigating the criminal justice system in the 80s. And in both of those um, periods, I was involved with uh, two major police corruption investigations. Uh, The rest of the book is fictional. All the characters are fictional. And what I attempted to do was to write a novel that would uh, get the attention of young police officers in particular. That's the target audience for me, that someone would read the book and uh, uh, stop me on the street someday and say, I read your book, and it it scared the hell out of me. Because the thesis is that what would happen... If, in addition to the humiliation and disgrace uh, that accompanies an arrest of a police officer for bribery or other corrupt acts, someone uh, who is a police officer found themselves targeted for uh, the murder of three people and, and uh, went on trial in a sensational murder case uh, which takes place in Suffolk County. And uh, that's basically the gist of the book.
0: So the book, as you mentioned, it does take place in two different time periods, mm-hmm. uh, basically the early 90s and then the late 60s to early 70s. Tell me what the police culture was like during that earlier period.
1: Well, <laughs> unfortunately, um, the culture was the blue wall of silence. Uh, police the police officers and the, the vast majority of cops uh, at all times, in all my experience, are honest, decent, hardworking people who, uh, in my view, always been underpaid But faced with uh, the corruption, uh, which was uh, significant at the time, the vast majority of the police officers, men and women, turned their backs on it. And uh, I believe and I've always believed that that allowed the corruption to fester and grow to a point that uh, something had to be done about it. And if we fast forward to the early 1990s, the one person who was able to do something about it is the current New York City Police Commissioner, Raymond W. Kelly. And Ray had served in every level in the police department, from a street patrol officer you know, right up to he was a chief in charge of policy and planning. And Ray Kelly decided that he was not going to wait for another commission report. He knew exactly what had to be done. So he did three things. One, uh, he changed the name of the Internal Affairs Bureau, to inf- uh, a division, rather, to Internal Affairs Bureau. And within the police department, that has some cachet. And, and uh, so became IAB. Uh, secondly, he put a three-star chief in charge of uh, of IAB and directed him to a p- report to the commissioner every day or at any time that he felt necessary. So you had complete access between the person who was responsible for creating a structure to deal with corruption. But the third thing he did, which was probably uh, the thing that really changed the culture of the police department, He invited police officers from all ranks to apply for uh, this new Internal Affairs Bureau as a career path. And he made it very, very clear that if you intended to go anywhere in the police department, you had better put some time in Internal Affairs. And to this day, that's still carried on because when uh, Rudolph Giuliani became the mayor and uh, replaced Ray Kelly with Bill Bratton, who was also a, a seasoned professional, Bratton and the subsequent police commissioners kept the uh, the Kelly design. Uh, when Kelly came back under Mayor Bloomberg, uh, he was very pleased to see that that design was still in place. And to this day, if you wanted to go uh, to the Joint Terrorist Task Force, which is a very prestigious unit within the police department, working with the federal uh, law enforcement establishment, uh, you've got to do some time in internal affairs. So, the culture of the Blue Wall, I think, has been substantially breached. So there's a significant difference today than there was, in my view, ever before in the police department.
0: In your book, you talk about sort of some of the ways that, um, I guess, that corruption was enacted, Mm -hmm. um, that these cops basically made money and stuff. And I'm sure it's really familiar to you, but I was surprised to read about some Mm -hmm. of these... um, I, I guess scam is not the right word, sort of some of these arrangements that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe to me sort of what you were likely to be doing if you were a corrupt officer at this time?
1: Well, it was quite structured. I mean, if they'd spent as much time studying for promotional exams, a lot of them would have become, would have become chiefs. For example, in the 13th Plain Clothes Division, uh, which we investigated when I was chief of the Rackets Bureau in the 70s, we took down 70% of the patrol, police patrol unit were 24 cops. And the plainclothes division was set up to deal with uh, two of the most intractable, nonviolent crimes in our society, prostitution, the oldest profession, and bookmaking. And prostitution was something that, you know, even to this day, uh, people find vexatious. Although, and if I can step aside from the book for a moment, we've had a program since 2002, called the John School, where I force Johns, or people who solicit prostitutes, to pay for a school. And they pay for a five hour class, uh, or they go to trial and they get 60 days in jail if they're convicted. And most of them are for the, the school. Well, of 2,300 people have gone through the school, only eight have been rearrested. So they must scare the hell out of these people. But it's an intractable problem. And of course, bookmaking everyone knew that Joe the Bookie was a nice guy. And they could never make the connection between the fact that Joe the Bookie was nothing more than a franchisee for organized crime. The five families controlled then, as they do today, uh, organized bookmaking. So dealing with these two intractable issues, a lot of uh, creative crooked cops decided to make money from it. So from the prostitutes, they would solicit favors, they would take money, they would, uh, instead of... Uh, arresting and putting a, a woman through the system, they would uh, force uh, sexual favors. They take uh, part of the money they were getting for their street activity, and from the bookmakers, they had a very, very structured payment. The police officer got six hundred bucks a month. Uh, the sergeants got twelve hundred dollars a month, and the lieutenants got eighteen hundred dollars a month. So it was a well planned, structured payment. They referred to themselves as a corporation, and the corporation met. Regularly, a monthly meeting of the corporation where they would discuss things that uh, corporate board members would discuss. So this was,
0: is this is all real life stuff. This oh, isn't, absolutely. Okay, where yeah. where is the corporation?
1: Where? Yeah. Well, it was in in the basement of um, the uh, apartment of a woman named Wilma Green, who is was, uh, was a curious thing for me, a person for me as well, because Wilma complained bitterly that there weren't enough African American cops on the pad or or getting money. So it was, it was, you know, as people said at the time, you know, so it was, she wasn't exactly Rosa Parks. It was the first civil rights section, statement made about you know, corruption. But they would meet on a regular basis, and they would discuss uh, their problems. Now, it's reenacted in the book, of course. But the, uh, and then later on, in the 80s, when I had the corruption investigation as special state prosecutor, they had learned from the mistakes of the corporation. The corporation made everything too risky. So they decided to set up what essentially was communist cells, and they would have these different cell groups uh, throughout the city, small, four, five, six, seven people. In Brooklyn, they were called the Buddy Boys, and what they did is these, and they called themselves, you know, they were liberating money that was going to drug makers, uh, drug drug dealers. So they would meet, and they would set up set out to uh, rip off the 789 gang, drug gangs, in their precinct. They would take the money and the drugs. They would arrest people who were runners for the drug gangs. They would withhold uh, half of the drugs and then resell them to rival drug gangs. And at the end of the tour, they would meet in uh, Bush Terminal uh, outside of the precinct, and they'd split up the money. And they believed by doing it in that fashion, rather than having this elaborate corporate structure, uh, they would be secure. And they were, uh, except that they uh, with, they didn't count on the fact that I was able to turn to corrupt cops, uh, Winter and Magno, uh, who you know, we, we caught uh, taking money from a major drug dealer in, in Bed-Stuy. And as a result of turning them, we then were able to wire them up and they could you know, run through the different cells and and capture. We ended up prosecuting 16 cops uh, out of that.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio today is Brooklyn D.A. Charles Hines. His book, Triple Homicide, is out now from St. Martin's Press. More from him in a moment. But first, amidst all this talk of cops gone bad, it seems useful to pay a visit to the world of New York's real public servants. Emergency personnel, like police, often work odd hours. WFUV producers checked in on a New York City police officer and firefighter working the night shift to keep New Yorkers safe and sound while most of us are asleep in our beds. I,
2: realize it's just, it's garbage on. What it I don't know type of garbage on a car. I don't know if it's a vehicle or a garbage bar, okay. We're wired and coming in. My name is uh, Sergeant Danny Collado. I work the midnight tour in the precinct located in uh, Lower Manhattan. Working on the midnights, I think, um, sort of alleviates a lot of the heavy traffic from people and where you can relax a little bit and sort of take it in stride. Whereas working other tours, you sort of have a lot of things going on. You have to sort of manage everything and try not to pull your hair out. And my personal view is that it's a, it's a good tour. If you like the, the, the slow pace, even though it's New York City, it's a slow pace. It's slower than the other tours. A lot less people around. But then, you know, the, the flip side of that, of course, is you're working midnight hours. You're, you can't do anything. Your life is Your, so, it's your social life. It's, it's pretty much put on hold and unless you, you have a family and it works for you. But if you don't if you don't need the tour, it's it's not that easy to get adjusted to it. You really have to work at getting adjusted to it. You have to sleep during the day, sort of sleep in the afternoon to get a good four or five hours of sleep, wake up, and then stay up all night. So it's not uh, easy to do if you don't need to do it. If, if, if you need to do it, I guess you find incentive in that and you make it happen. Regardless of what tour I work, I'm, I'm happy to do what I do. I think that... Just being here at work, it's, a, it's an honor always. My name is Nick Vretos.
3: I'm a firefighter, Engine 39, located on 67th Street. We Just got uh, relocated down to Pitt Street because they need coverage in this area. It's 1:40 a.m. A little tired, and uh, I got to work about another 15 hours so <laughs> I'm on a 24 hour shift it's it's a long shift uh it's exciting sometimes you could stay up for 24 hours like we're doing now <laughs> it's hard when you work at night yeah I've been working since six o'clock and I gotta I get off at six tomorrow night it hasn't really affected my family life I'm single live alone so social life it's hard on the weekends can't go out But, you know, when you work at 24, all you got to do is two of them a week, and then that's your 48 hours, you know, 40 hours. see a lot of drunk people at night. (laughs) A lot of EMS runs for poor people that can't afford a house, and they're on the street. People think that they're dead or something, and they (laughs) they call us. Crazy things like, you know, trains and the robberies and stuff on the train, and people getting shot, all kinds of stuff. Car accidents, drunk driving. Just had dinner at 11:15, and uh, we actually went to sleep, or rest, as you call it, at like 12:45. And then now we got relocated here, and I don't think I can be able to fall asleep for like another hour. And then probably by then we're gonna have to go back, so then we're gonna be awake for that. So pretty much no sleep tonight.
0: That piece from WfuV News. Now let's continue our conversation with Charles Hines. Although Hines had written some nonfiction in the past, including an account of one of his better-known cases, Triple Homicide is his first work of fiction. I asked him why he decided to write a crime novel and why he decided this was the story he wanted to tell.
1: You know, I had written uh, a book about my experiences as the chief uh, prosecutor in the so-called Howard Beach incident, and uh, 20 years ago this past December, I, I finished a four-month trial where we convicted uh, three or four killers of a young black kid uh, 21 years ago. but uh, And that was fairly easy. Uh, to write a nonfiction book, as it turned out, was fairly easy to do. I mean, I had a uh, an editor who uh, I was so impressed with that I gave him co-billing, Bob Drury. And we had it out in 18 months. But the motivation for this book was that I came out of the office, uh, my Rackets Bureau office, late one night. And I saw a young uh, cop being rear-cuffed by a special unit of the police department, which was not internal affairs. They were the Public Morals Administrative Division. They were called PMAD. And they struck terror throughout the city in the hearts and uh, minds of crooked lawyers, crooked super bookmakers, and cops. And they were putting this police officer under arrest. They had rear-cuffed him. And just at that point, the elevator door opened, and his very pregnant wife came out, burst into tears, ran over to him, threw her arms around him. And the both of them watched for just a few seconds, uh, writhing with pain as they sobbed uncontrollably. And then went back into my office, and I just thought it was such a waste. And for the next couple of days, that scene played over. And I I couldn't figure out what to do about it. And, you know, I grew up with cops, and I knew that if I wrote a a manual about corruption. They would pay no attention to it at all because uh basically very, very cynical men and women, you know, I know. And so I just I discarded any idea of writing, uh, and then at the end of the uh investigation into the seven seven precinct, I thought, you know, maybe if I could write a novel and come up with some you know, some idea to uh to advance it, you know, maybe that would be the way that would get someone's attention. Um, and uh, developing the characters is largely, you know, a kind of morphing of people who I've known over over the years.
0: Now, you say in the intro to this book that it's a, uh, a quote mostly true story. How true is this story?
1: Well, it's it's certainly true about the corruption investigations that I dealt with. But again, all of the characters are either morph morphed characters of people I've known over the years, or were made of made up. I mean, created
0: why did you decide to write sort of a genre novel instead of, you know, just a straight novel? Or why 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 a crime novel?
1: Well, because my my goal was to do something about police corruption. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, that I was concerned that there was, uh, you know, substantial numbers of cops involved. And there was certainly a significant number. Maybe that's just a play on words. But It was upsetting to me. Enough upsetting to me that I I saw so many cops throwing away their lives for nothing. That uh, I felt that that would be a good target. If I could get young kids to read it, it would be it would be important. I mean, it has a much wider audience. I mean, trial lawyers. uh, A lot of trial lawyers have read it and loved it. Uh, A lot of people have nothing to do with the criminal justice system like it a lot. So. Well, I my initial goal was to, to try and do something good for young cops, get them to understand how wrong it is to stand back and allow people to tarnish their reputation.
0: Now, you have devoted much of your life to uh, basically to the criminal justice system and to sort of understanding crime and how it works. How did you get interested in crime?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I'm a recovering defense lawyer. You know, I spent uh, a good maybe a third of my career as a defense lawyer. And how I got there was a, a kind of epiphany. I mean, the last place I was going to be was, was practicing as a criminal defense lawyer or a, or a criminal lawyer, prosecutor or defense. I wanted to you know, be a corporate lawyer. You know, So uh, with, uh, with, with my grades and everything else, that wasn't going to happen. So I ended up becoming a, a claims adjuster for Allstate. And then one day, I, I uh, saw an ad in the law journal. An uh, admiralty firm was looking for, for an associate. But I just couldn't get Admiralty law, you know, it was as boring as to tears. And finally I met a friend of mine who was in the Legal Aid Society. And he said, There's an opening in, in legal aid, why don't you come down? And I applied for the civil division and they said there's nothing in the civil division for you. Become a go with all our criminal division and when we have an opening in civil, you can go over there. Well I went into one hundred Center street the first week and had an epiphany. It was where I should be.
0: What what was it about being in court that made you say ah oh, this is where I should I be. was home
1: that was it you know and I, I loved I loved to fight I like I like a, a good always had liked to have a good fight and uh, you know I've long since given up any physical fight so now I fight with my mouth you know and I, I enjoy the, the, the combat and that's what that's what trial work is really all about I mean I teach trial advocacy in three law schools one of them is uh, very proud of my association at Fordham for the last sixteen years and that's what I tell my kids. That there's nothing as exciting as walking into a courtroom and basically you know, taking it over in terms of your comfort level, uh, courtroom presence, and understanding of what you've got to do in terms of preparation before you ever get to the courtroom. So it's just a very exciting thing to do, I think. Not everybody feels that way. A lot of people you know, you know, just have no interest in trying cases. They'd rather make money as corporate lawyers.
0: You said you grew up around a lot of cops. What was that like?
1: I love cops. Cops are terrific. They uh love firefighters. I mean I didn't know many of these firefighters when I became commissioner. But you know, basically Boy Scouts who want to do the right thing. boy and girl scouts want to do the right thing, you know. And they go in the police department to do the right thing. And then some of them some of them got corrupted. Some of them still get corrupted. Uh and and that's why it's so important that uh you know, Ray Kelly's reform remains and, and I believe will will uh, exist long after Ray Kelly leaves uh, as police commissioner.
0: Let me ask you one more question. I I know mostly about what being a DA is from watching uh, Law & Order, frankly. Right. And as far as I can uh, tell, I, there's no there's no real clear indication of what the DA actually does on that show. Can you tell me as a DA what your everyday work life looks like?
1: <clears throat> well, it, it it varies. It depends on who the prosecutor is. I, mean, I I'm very hands-on. I, mean, I my first call to my chief assistant uh, uh is at you know seven o'clock how many people died is my question and she gives me the the rundown you know whether someone's been arrested or not so that's my my main interest is every time one of my citizens dies, i want to know about it quickly um uh the 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 there are a number of priority investigations within my office that I get uh certainly briefed. Either a couple of times a week, or depending on on uh, the particular issue, it could be daily. You know I try and get over to court to watch my my uh, assistants and and to you know uh, give them advice on trying cases and the like. But basically, it's a lot of supervision.
0: Is there anything else that you'd want to add?
1: No, I hope I hope more people read the book. <laughs> it's sold more than 10,000 copies so far. so but, it's, it's not bad for a first novel.
0: Well, the book is Triple Homicide, and it's by Charles J. Hines, who is the District Attorney of Kings County. Thanks so much for coming
1: in. Thank you.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, a look at what happens when doctors become patients. That's ahead at 7.30. Closing the show this morning is a look at one more modern crime that's taken root in New York and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Every day on the streets of New York City, a brisk but illegal trade in pirated DVDs takes place in broad daylight, and no one seems to really care. Pirated DVDs cost Hollywood millions of dollars, but it is a moral gray area for many people who don't think they're hurting anyone. From Columbia Radio News, Craig Lamolt has this look at New York's world of bootlegged movies.
4: Walking down Canal Street in New York's Chinatown, there's no multiplex movie theater, but it's not long before you're offered all the latest movies.
5: Uh, The latest one is uh, Talladega Nights, then uh, Lady in the Water, John Tucker Must Die, and um, there are a bunch of monster houses, cars, Superman, X-Men...
4: Dave works at a tiny storefront off this busy street, mostly selling knockoff handbags and T-shirts that say things like New York City Mental Hospital and Don't piss me off, I'm running out of places to hide the bodies. But a few times a week, two Chinese women show up offering him pirated movie DVDs so new that some aren't even in the theaters yet. He buys them for two fifty and sells them for $5.00. And like certain other contraband vendors, he never tries his own product.
5: I don't watch good like DVDs. Yeah. I watch, I go to the theater, no matter what.
4: He doesn't really think of himself as breaking the law. He's just violating it. As proof, he says even the cops don't seem to care too much. Dave thinks they might be paid off to look the other way. And surprisingly, it actually bothers him.
5: City Hall is right there. It's happening right in front of City Hall, you know. It's the mayor's office right there. The precinct. one precinct is only three blocks away, and the other precinct is four blocks away. But still, it's not being stopped. But it's,
4: it's funny, you almost sound like, like you wish it would be stopped, like there's something wrong with the fact that they're not stopping it, when, in fact, actually, you know, you're making a couple of bucks doing it, right?
5: Well, yeah, you know, from DVD, yeah, just a couple of bucks, you know, it's just not that much money from DVDs. We are not pirating the DVDs, you know, it's already pirated, it's doing somebody else. I mean, our complaint is if somebody want to, you know, go catch the people who want are selling the DVDs, they should go catch the guy who's copying it, who's doing the actual thing. It.
4: it turns out the police are doing exactly what Dave wants. In early August, cops raided two buildings in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and Sergeant Robert Ward, who led the raid, says they arrested eight DVD bootleggers and seized 71,000 pirated movies and CDs.
6: Now these guys have movies from, like I said, that are theaters today. They have movies from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, and... Back even further, they had old Boris Karloff black-and-white movies in there.
4: The locations were used to copy the movies and sell them to street vendors. Sergeant Ward says he was surprised by the level of professionalism of the setup and describes them as looking like a tower records, particularly at the second location they raided.
6: They had one large room with wire shelves completely around the room, overlooking Flappish Avenue. I mean, a very expensive, what should be a very expensive um, store to rent. But they had, like I said, approximately 25000 or so different CDs and DVDs, all of them bootlegged. And you would walk up there and the same thing, do your shopping. They had the bags ready to go. They would put your order in a bag for you, you pay your money, and off you go.
4: Not surprisingly, Sergeant Ward was quick to dispense with Dave's conspiracy theories that the police are paid off. But like Dave, police put DVD piracy on a scale of badness, and it's sort of near the bottom.
6: There is people out there dedicated to it, but, you know, New York City is... New York City Police Department, there's a lot of uh, a, lot of concerns out there. So like anything else, the department addresses it as much as they can, but it's very hard to um, address every single issue.
4: The one group that's most interested in addressing the piracy issue are the people making the movies that are being pirated. Michael Robinson is vice president and director of the U.S. Anti-Piracy Operation for the Motion Picture Association of America. He sees it simply.
6: I may not have the money to buy a Cadillac. That doesn't give me the right to go steal one or to go buy a Cadillac for $5 from someone else who stole it.
4: Robinson's playing the morality card because it's the most important one he's got. He knows his biggest challenge isn't getting police to arrest people like Dave or even getting Dave to stop selling bootleg DVDs. It's that the group that seems to have the least problem with the legality of pirated DVDs is the public. People who would never dream of walking into a store and walking out with a DVD they didn't pay for often don't think twice about buying pirated DVDs. With blockbuster movie releases making hundreds of millions of dollars in just the first weekend, who could it hurt? It's not just the, the, the producers and
1: the actors and the directors that, are, that lose because of piracy. It is, uh, it is everyone. It is uh, the individual theater operator and it's the individuals that work inside that theater right down to uh, to the kid who's working behind the concession stand. There's an awful lot of people out there who, if they just stopped and thought about what they were doing before
4: they did it, wouldn't do it. It's an uphill battle. Most crimes have a victim you can see, and most people buying bootleg DVDs are not thinking about that kid selling popcorn. So until the day we can all collectively agree that buying pirated movies is the same as stealing, you can head on down to Chinatown to get the latest releases from Dave.
5: You know, basically selling a bootleg or selling counterfeit, uh, it is illegal. It's definitely illegal. But uh, at the same time, that's, at the same time, like you know, we sell what our customer demand.
4: I'm Craig Lamolt, Columbia Radio News.
0: From WfuV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and you can listen to it in our audio archive, which is also on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is FordhamConversations at WFUV.org, and we would be delighted to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.